Welcome to Grain on the Brain, a podcast started by the Prairie Organic Grain Initiative and now hosted by the Manitoba Organic Alliance. We're working to create resiliency and stability in the prairie organic grain sector. Our host is Scott Beaton, who operates a 640-acre organic farm in Manitoba. Tune in as each episode Scott talks to researchers, farmers, and other experts in the organic sector to discuss important issues in organic grain farming. Check out our website at manitobaorganicalliance.com for resources, tools, and the expertise you need to get you growing. You can connect with us on Twitter at Manitoba Organic or come meet us at one of the events that we host. Welcome back, everyone. Before we kick off this episode, I just wanted to quickly tell you that we have been dreaming of green fields this summer and are starting to plan our summer field tours. We're looking forward to getting outside meeting people and seeing what's going on around organic and regenerative farms across Manitoba. So if you're in Manitoba or fancy a field uh, trip somewhere, then check out our website, manitobaorganicalliance.com and our events pages, and we'll be updating them with our upcoming field tours as soon as we have those details for you. For this episode, we're actually going to present the recording from a panel session at our 2022 Prairie Organics Conference, which was held virtually this past February. Scott Beaton, our wonderful regular Grain on the Brain host, hosted this panel as well and spoke with Ryan Kennard from the Assiniboine West Watershed District in Manitoba and Henry Wilson, who's a researcher with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. To give you a bit of context, watershed districts in Manitoba used to be called conservation districts, and they support farmers throughout Manitoba through a number of different programs to help preserve wetlands, promote biodiversity on farms through shelter belts or other eco for plantings. They had both given presentations prior to this panel on water management systems on farms, and they talked about everything from preserving wetlands, soil health, carbon capture, and planting trees. So this panel session was the follow-up that Scott asked questions from the audience and his own questions as well. So Scott, in addition to being an organic farmer, also works with the Manitoba Habitat Heritage Corporation as a habitat conservation specialist. So we get to hear from his expertise as well. If you want to watch any of the original presentations, uh, go to our Manitoba Organic Alliance YouTube channel, and you can find the unedited versions there. So I guess we'll uh, go into our panel discussion here. I've got a list of some of the questions that came earlier on uh, that I'll maybe try and run through real quick. I guess, uh, thanks, Ryan. Uh, A lot of my work with Manitoba Habitat has been focused on restoring drained wetlands and you uh, gave us a pretty good reference there early on. Um, I think wetlands have been a pretty common theme here, but in listening to both of you guys talk, uh, Ryan also spoke about that the kind of shallow wetlands program that a lot of the conservation districts or the watersheds um, have to offer. And there were more than a couple of questions uh, that came up in the chat that kind of said, who, who do we talk to to get more information? And I would direct you to, uh, to your watershed district and if you're not sure who that is, uh, I'll uh, point you to maybe throw a question to Ryan uh, or uh, you can uh, talk to me in the chat or whatever after we're done here. We can get you talking to the right people. Um, and yeah, Francis made a comment about the, the value of those shallow wetlands in, especially in a drought year. Ryan showed that picture of the, the Timothy that was growing well 
uh, after that water recedes. And I think in most situations, that's uh, I, the the program that the watersheds have come up with is not that you need to set them aside. And and uh, we kind of heard Francis allude to, well, in a, in a dry year, cultivate through them and you might get a crop out of them. And, and I don't know that there's anything wrong with that. And a lot of the conservation organizations out of the States have gone down that road to, to say, not that you need to seed this down to a perennial and, and that's a good thing if you can can make that work in your system but just don't drain those those shallow wetlands and uh, they uh, they've seen some good results come out of that so um, I think that was kind of something I heard from from both you guys um, yeah so that was Jen McComb and Mark Rivard kind of kind of asked where do we get more information Mark Rivard spoke about uh where where to get some permaculture uh going and yeah I think I would have you talk to your watershed there um Ian Robson threw out a comment uh just about reinventing PFRA and I think it came from Ryan's talk about uh, a, a bit of a lack of uh access to trees that's been going on uh, he's used uh, Farm Resiliency Agency, and I don't know if either of you uh, have some thoughts on on where that might come from, or or kind of yeah that that shift back to getting some more public uh, funding for trees. Um, yeah, Ryan, you mentioned that two million trees program, so I don't know if you want to expand on that a little bit. Yeah, I can't really speak to it too much there there is a an application in play right now both manitoba level as well as a couple of different national organizations it does seem to be a multi-year program so the the two billion tree program is going to span multiple years and uh, i think the intent from our end of it is that we will provide trees free to producers that are willing to plant so, I mean, when we cried foul in 2012, 2013, when the Conservative government decided to scrap PFRA, um, we all wrote letters of protest. And, and I think the government of the day's belief was that the private sector would step up and provide trees. Um, and and at, at a fairly reasonable cost. I just, I priced out a shelter belt, a half mile long shelter belt this morning. And, you know, it was four or $5,000. And the tree is, is a small component of that, really. When you start doing land prep and if you're fencing them off and putting a weed barrier down, that, that's where that's where it gets a little more expensive. But um, two, three dollars per meter, I guess, would be a, probably a fairly average price to, to plant a belt. Yeah, good. So not a huge, I think uh, the, the investment there, you should be able to recoup that before too, too long. Um, I know we've shifted or we've put a lot of shelter belts in at our place as well too and i kind of justify them the same way that that you do that uh a little less evaporation so we're better able to to trap some of the neighbors snow that they let blow around and uh have a little more moisture available during the growing season at our place so i think there's lots to be said there um henry i appreciated that kind of segue to, to talking about carbon and I won't, don't want to put you on the spot too much but yeah I think um, like Ryan talked about soil health and I think I've become quite interested in it too. Um, what do you see as 
is kind of some of the some of the reasons to go down that that soil health road and and carbon. I mean, I think there is a market developing, and there may be some opportunity to capitalize on it to some degree. But uh, at the end of the day, in my book, if if you can put more carbon in the ground, you're you're increasing your resiliency, and I think that's what we were kind of hearing from your talk. Um, yeah, I don't know if you want to talk more about kind of some of your results on on increased carbon and and how that might affect production. Yeah, I, a lot of that's my my colleague Aaron's sort of special specialty specialization. Certainly, there's potential links and a lot of talk about uh, the the potential for you know changes in soil organic matter to impact the hydrological soil hydrological properties, water cooling capacity, that type of thing. Um, some of that's kind of established, and some of it's maybe there's some questions what it means when we scale it up. But either way. Even if it's not, uh, like, I guess I think I think I can say for most most sites that we look at, and you know, Aaron could could speak better to this than me. Um, we're pretty close to you know we we might improve the soil properties, but in terms of the overall carbon balance, sort of the impact on the global carbon balance, carbon cycles, we're the the best sites we're we're more as close to being in balance. If it's, you know, annual crop production, we're not talking about a perennial area. Um, so there, some of the solutions or some of the sort of getting paid for sequestration might be more challenging than, than we'd hoped kind of from a, from a producer's perspective, but there's really good reasons to build, to build your soil organic matter either, either way, right. Just from, from the soil properties, particularly that that side of it. So, I don't want to. I'll stop there before I get too speculative. Uh, Ian Robson, go ahead. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, regarding the the PFRA, briefly, uh, Ryan, uh, PFRA are more than tree uh, shelter belts. It uh, was concerned about water and tracking wetlands, and a whole host of other uh, beneficial. Uh, management practices and management ideas and assistance too, uh, right directly to farmers, mainly on the per. Uh, the Farmers Union has proposed a Canadian Farm Resiliency Agency. You can read about that in our uh, Tackling the Farm Crisis and the Tackling the uh, Climate Crisis report. Um, and that is something that would be important uh, to, uh, to actually get a handle on and, and assist farmers uh, with uh, their concerns over water and soil and uh, rotations and that that helps everybody organic or non-organic right on i don't know if either of you guys have any further thoughts to that or but yeah thanks for clearing that up i think uh ian that's that's uh, a good way to to get some some reading in um I was going to say, I won't say too much because I'm obviously not an official departmental spokesperson <laughs> and when it comes to, you know, PFRA and sort of what, what's happened. But certainly many of my colleagues who I work with on water related issues were previously with PFRA and, and are still within, within AFC. There's maybe a bit more research and a little less on the programming side, but I think there has been rebuilding of some capacity over kind of the last in recent years uh, around around water. And we've had a couple of new people start in Man in Manitoba with, with AFC with some some focus in that 
in that area and and when it comes to some of the connections with on on the carbon uh or climate change file that side of things certainly that's something that is a priority in our in our mandate letter and and there's programming coming coming through along with that doesn't doesn't negate that there's sort of a gap left from pfra and certainly my colleagues would suggest that too but um it kind of is many of those areas are recognized as priorities as well so i guess i'll just leave it at that and there are some some programs that will be coming along or that are there so hopefully it's a positive in that sense sure uh, we got a comment in from Sid Jones about working across the slope of the field to try and spread the water out. I think it was similar to what Ryan showed with that kind of key line design to try and move that water around and not let it find the, the gully and, and run away real quick. Um, I, I think there's huge value in that kind of soil sponge that Ryan uh, mentioned. And I wonder if you guys um have some ideas on kind of the practices that you feel might work well that you might piggyback together on an organic kind of cropping system to to increase that soil health and try and store a little more water in the soil so i'll leave that with you whoever thinks first can speak first i'll maybe just because it ties into some of some of what i was talking to francis about Maybe just one comment and, and sort of something that we've that surprised me when we're measuring runoff from from some of these fields or across a range of fields, not just organic ones, being that the, there is that relationship with soil roughness or the roughness kind of the similar idea to going across across the or you know opposite to the direction of flow kind of thing and creating those contours. But even just at that really small or fine scale, kind of having those those little depressions. It does make a difference. Like so, for if two fields have the same amount of soil and one's rougher, it's we're seeing less water leaving in the spring, right? So it's sitting sitting there and and infiltrating. The trade-off is right. You want to have you need to retain some snow, probably. Um, so some, and I think there's there was work like older work, like before my time, even being like, being uh, in in research, right? Where the there was a focus on how do we retain so snow and have that add to soil moisture and some kind of combination of you know shelter belts are one area we talked about but having having some areas with stubble taller stubble and some areas where there is a soil surface created that um, promotes infiltration i think there's some there's room for those that those kinds of systems and be pretty interesting to do to see a little bit more around that i think it's, it doesn't have to be all one or all the other as far as tillage goes. There might be some some ways to do it strategically around around water management, kind of just based on some of the patterns that we've seen with with where where water's going in the spring. Ryan, if you had any thoughts on kind of practices that that worked well or that you could see fitting into an organic system, I'm not that familiar with the organic systems. I, I do like. Yesterday, when, when Dr. Bork talked about having to sequester it or grow it before it's available to be incorporated or brought into the carbon building system, kind of was an interesting concept. I think everybody should be thinking about that. Like, we do need to grow this material before we can either incorporate it back in or, or just have it in the system to be, to be converted. Um, and also, I was listening to a presentation the other day where both 
both these producers were talking about their own experiences and and discussed the idea of stripper headers. One one fellow had adopted use of stripper headers, and the other fellow was interested in it. So that might be another way of trying to like leave more biomass in the field to to, to be there for conversion or for armor shading of weed, you know, re reduction of weed per, uh, growth and all those kinds of things. That's that's an interesting point on round stripper headers because some of the fields that have had the, you know, the the largest snowpack certainly are that we worked in with some of the producers we worked with have stripper headers and it's kind of amazing how much snow <laughs> is retained in some of those areas and particularly sometimes where maybe there's some areas that were packed down and some areas where the stripper header is used and there's those gaps in between that just completely fill fill up so some some combinations they have a stripper header in some areas where there's tillage or whatever to promote infiltration might be pretty yeah. interesting mm -hmm. yeah i think for those interested we just heard about uh different commodities and markets and where things are going i've had some really good luck with a stripper header in flax uh it seems like that's the way to combine flax as far as i can tell um so anybody that's interested in doing that i would uh encourage you to to give it a shot um, I think I was probably on the same webinar as Ryan based on what he just said, but uh, I think that was Monday. We The, the fellow that had adopted this stripper header was really advocating for a, a green plant growing into the fall as a means to uh, improve infiltration, kind of that late fall moisture and the snow uh, runoff as well. And I wonder if we've got any, if any work's been done uh, that kind of compares the value of stubble versus a, a green plant. And I guess the reason I ask is I, I do like to do my fall tillage after the crop comes off um, and I lose most of my stubble or my standing stubble anyways, as a result of that work. But I, I think there's probably some really good potential to to increase infiltration through seeding that that green plant after and um, it's pretty easy to get discouraged when you see this little two or three leaf oat come up and do its thing and it freezes but um, he was kind of saying he anecdotally uh, he felt like it made a huge difference in terms of how much water was getting into the soil um, so yeah, I wonder if either you guys had any thoughts on that because I guess yeah if you go back to those soil health principles that's one of the the really big ones and I think it's one that we could do a better job of adopting as organic producers is that living root more more of the time kind of thing so yeah I don't know if there's any if that makes sense to you that that do your tillage and then get something else growing there might do a, a similar thing or might even be better than than having that stubble in the the root channels the old root channels there yeah, I don't, <laughs> there's, it's, it's, it seems like there's trade-off from, from sort of from my perspective or what I see, it, it kind of depends on the year. Like in a dry year, it might be easier to, I don't know if establish is the right word, establish stubble than it is to establish a, a crop that's kind of, kind of going. And so that's always, in terms of thinking about sort of water management that has to start the season before uh not being you know not being able to predict the long-term kind of conditions is it's always a challenge to sort of suggest like well i'm not going to suggest somebody 
doesn't want to retain snow, but then sometimes those fields are pretty hard to get into if they're really wet, that sort of side of it. But with the living, like if something's established, then the trade-off is in the spring, it doesn't have to, or if it's of say something that might overwinter, um, the trade-off there is that living root, then it's ready to go right in, in the spring and you don't have to worry about those field, field operations. Yeah, I think that uh, that helps. Uh, we got a question about carbon from Dave Ork. Um, I, Ryan, you kind of alluded to something or you didn't allude to it. You said it there that you need, if you're going to put carbon in the soil, you need to be able to grow a plant. And I think when we're short on fertility, sometimes we're really limiting ourselves in terms of what we can put in the soil. And so if that's looking at some of the, the phosphorus products that uh, Michelle and Joanne talked about yesterday, I, I think that might be what we need to do, even though sometimes that kind of goes against the, the thought process that a lot of us uh, subscribe to. Um, I'm working on a perennial program to that's main goal is to store uh, or sequester carbon and I think we're going to use some kind of phosphorus fertilizer and we need to include legumes to, to grow some nitrogen to, uh, to drive that system. And so Dave's question was around, um, say, our, our native soil in our areas was at 10 or 12 percent uh, organic carbon. Is that where we should be shooting to get back to? Like, is, is that kind of the, where we can get to again? Um, what what have you guys seen in the in the science or in your com communities as far as where where are where are we aiming for so i mean i was on a call this morning with a producer from redverse that says he has taken his soil from two percent back to eight um 10 to 12 is kind of what the literature says was available or was there like prior to cultivation I find it hard to maybe fathom that we'll get back to that considering the practices that occurred before cultivation. I mean, you listen to the stories about the grass was as high as the horse's back and that majority of that grass was probably being cycled every year or at least was being produced and then available to be cycled. So the, the 10 to 12 could be a probably a lofty goal, but um, dare to dream, right? Like why wouldn't you set that as the goal and if you fall short, well, you still tried to hit it out of the park. Yeah, I'm, and I'm, I'm tentative to say too much because it's not necessarily my, my main, main area. But um, probably even like Brian says, it's good to set have have a goal in mind. Even even trying to to maintain a balance and not continue to lose organic matter is probably uh, a, a benefit in some cases too. It gets really complicated when we start to get into sort of comparison against historical or tracking change because you know the depth to which we sample makes a big difference and where sort of where plants roots are going and it's you know it's a lot easier to build up right at the surface. Being a water quality person, I always kind of think about the practice and trade-offs. If we're if we're building up carbon just right near the surface, mostly we're probably also building up things like phosphorus right near the surface and. Sort of the potential for losses um, can increase. Um, a lot of times, some some of the you know if I look at literature where there have been really big changes, or even some of the sites we're looking at big changes in soil carbon, it's usually when 
there's some some import of material in some way, say like bale feeding, these kind of things where you bring in a feed source and of course there's carbon coming into the system. It makes a difference. Um, and in organic systems, you know, it, it, it is a positive or a good thing on the carbon balance when we're adding manure, it does bring quite a bit of carbon back in, but then any sort of the net net benefit or the net change to the carbon balance, it's, it's kind of have to think off, off farm as well. Um, so there's things that have, you know, that meter comes from somewhere, right? And, and then usually there's, there's material that leaves the field. So um, in terms of, that's why it's complicated, I guess, in, in terms of the perfect fix or the solutions, it's, uh, uh, there isn't just sort of something that we can prescribe, right? Yeah, I know, right on. I think, uh, I think that's the right attitude is you gotta, if you gotta bring something in to drive that, production that's gonna kind of leapfrog and, and get you into a different ballpark then I think that's what you have to do and if that's manure or, or what have you I, I think it uh, can do some really good stuff I right, just see Francis made a comment about uh, kind of cross seeding and that she feels like uh, water runoff uh, or less runoff more infiltration therefore and better germination um, so yeah I think that kind of expands upon that that idea earlier on. Uh, I'm just reading Grant's thoughts there. Um, Mark uh, Newman, Karen keeps reading my brain. She's getting ahead of me always. Mark Newman was asking about issues with animals in uh, that your 12 inch culvert there, Ryan, and some of your your drains to, to draw down those big, uh, big dam projects. Do you have issues with Wildlife, I think, is what he's thinking. Oh yeah, for sure. So, like, what you didn't see was we do put beaver cages in front of those structures for the most part. And some of students every once in a while do get in there and uh, fling some stinky mud around if they if they need to. It is definitely an issue. Right on. Um, Karen had asked earlier. Uh, it was about kind of. We haven't seen that Mark Shepard key line system in, in the province. I don't know. Do you guys have thoughts on if you were, if you're setting something up, what, what were the things that you'd really want to shoot for in, in a system like that? I wanted to do something on my place, but I kind of talked myself out of it. I don't think I need, I don't really have the topography. I think, I think we need a little bit of topography. So like up into the, Rossburn or even in the Shell River watersheds now that we've expanded. I hope that there, there's somewhere up there where we can play with even just a couple of contours and a water um, holding structure, a basin, just to kind of have as a, as a demonstration site where, you know, we could intercept water that's going to come off of a, off of a contour and be channeled into a, to a retention site. I don't know, Henry, if that resonates with you, I think that's, I agree with you, Ryan. I've, I've looked at it too. And I don't, we don't have, we have less slope than you do. I think if we do a good job with our soil sponge, we negate the need to, to worry about that kind of key line system. But yeah, for those that feel like they can't get that drop of rain to get into the ground where it lands and it's going to want to run somewhere, if you kind of feel like that's your situation, then I'd really encourage you to kind of look into that Mark Shepherd type system that because uh, then I, yeah I think there's huge gains to be to be had by 
managing that little bit of water that's going to run off otherwise. Yeah, I always, when I look at it, I always kind of wonder about, and it probably depends farm by farm. We're kind of, you're already starting to talk about it, but kind of what's the cost benefit for for a producer, like in terms of the input or the, the, the requirements to set something like that up and then ongoing labor, that sort of thing. I, there's a lot of stuff. Maybe this is kind of segues into something broader I've been thinking about too. There's a lot, a lot of practices that are easier to implement when it comes to sort of features on the landscape, natural areas, if there's cattle in the system. It's a little harder sort of when we're talking about acres that might have annual crop production, that side of it. So um, kind of some of the trade-offs or what some of the, some of the benefits in an annual system, um, I mean, or, or, or challenges. I, I struggle with that sometimes when we're thinking about, okay, we're talking about riparian areas, wetlands, uh more natural areas those watersheds where we see that tend to have cattle right but um uh are there benefits that we can that we can promote kind of for, for the annual crop producer that doesn't have cattle as well or you know or is it making connections between farms and i know some of that's going on too but go ahead there Ryan. i was just gonna add too i think there's a barrier in the sense that we're just wet enough here that we don't really go through enough dry years to feel that pain. I think that that key line system was probably developed in a bit more of an arid environment where water is year after year, a very limiting factor. So it's just that much more of a valuable resource to capture and manage better. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely right. It seems like we get dry and talk about it, but next year we'll go back to normal and everybody will start digging ditches again. So, um, I wonder, you just said something interesting to me, Henry, about, yeah, the lack of livestock in some areas. And uh, I tend to think that's a mistake. Like we, there, I think every part of the province has, has acres that are better suited for perennials and are likely better suited for grazing ruminants. Um, and yeah, I wonder if you guys have some thoughts on how to how to fit those animals back into cropping systems, like where you see some some big holes that we're I don't know, like at our we quit photosynthesizing. Our our wheat crop is pretty much done photosynthesizing in July, and there's this huge window after uh, where I think there's room for for livestock to come back in. So I don't know if you, you have some thoughts on that that you'd like to share, but yeah, I think we've got to find a way to bring grazing livestock back in all over the province, not say they're for out West and I don't need to have them. I think that your water and fencing infrastructure are pretty big barriers and it's mindset. I wasn't really aware of it until I got talking to a guy that I know, but there's quite a, there's quite a hierarchy of, uh, Green farmers don't obviously look at livestock producers like at the same level. I think that there's a bit of a an issue there culturally almost where they, they don't want to deal with livestock. They think it's beneath them. They want to go away for the winter. <laughs> so there's barriers of, of infrastructure, which I've daydreamed about having a portable truck with a water system where you could roll out and have fences around crop fields and, and water all in one go. Um, and, and really try to work with a couple of guys, you know, to put those, 
put those two operations together because I think the benefits of integrating livestock are, are pretty big. I think the, the water source is an important, important point and almost dealing with that or having a way to, to develop water sources might be the, as much a limiting factor as anything for some of the, some of the integration and cross farms. And I'm just going to point to the link that um, Karen put in, put in the, in the chat. I think that type of approach to try and get, find ways for farms to work with each other is probably a really uh, important aspect that's got to happen if it's good, something's going to scale up. But the one I kind of alluded to it in one of my questions, <laughs> maybe it was a biased question to Francis and one of the caveats or concerns that, that I'd have too, when we talk about sort of making sure there's cattle in, on the landscape and part of conservation efforts is depending on the price of grain, there's always an incentive to just cram animals into marginal, or not marginally, just cram them into smaller spaces. Like it's good to make, to, to make, you know, to be able to maintain those areas and have some, some dollars from, from those acres, having them as grazing acres. But if it's, uh, there's, there's so almost, or I don't know what the right word is, being careful, almost have to be careful not to have those areas, maybe are more sensitive, kind of get too many animals in them for their carrying capacity kind of thing. So maybe that was, it's a long way of getting to the carrying capacity. <laughs> it's being something important to keep in mind probably because we could, can do more, more harm than good if, if we go too far in, in that direction. Yeah, for sure. I think there's a, there's a line that they don't want to cross. And um, yeah, there's been some pretty good technology increases in that fencing end of things. And I, I don't see the fencing as being a, a real obstacle anymore with some of the stuff. And I think the watersheds are probably there to help out with some of the costs of, of that stuff to get animals onto to grain land in the fall. Uh, but yeah, I think the water is a huge, huge obstacle you got to think about quite a bit, but uh, no, that's good. And yeah, Grant put a comment in there about, yeah, the, in those kind of rolling, rolling areas where you got some wetlands, uh, probably you don't want to do it year in and year out, but uh, I think there's a, a good way to, to make use of some of those areas that feel like they're being left all out. Uh, and yeah, Dave made a comment about the economics of, of cattle and that's, uh, yeah, I've gone into cattle myself in the last four or five years here and it's just hard to, to believe how little money is there. All the, the really good cattle producers have to be so uh, frugal and I'm not good at that all the time, but uh, yeah, that's, that's got a lot to do with it in my mind too. It's just, there's no, no money with, unless you're doing something real different. The 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 uh, Grant's comment about the rolling grain lands kind of tweaked my mind a little bit about sort of a broader issue in terms of when we're going right back to when we're talking about inputs potentially or the need for inputs and and phosphorus. Um, the, the we have pretty uneven uh, or we tend to have uneven distribution, particularly in these rolling landscapes. Um, we don't usually talk about, you know, precision organic kind of <laughs> that, that, that sort of idea, or at least the sort of the spatial aspect of it. But that is something we definitely see um, when we look across landscapes on, 
on some of the organic farms that we work at, uh, that there is uneven distribution, particularly with carbon and phosphorus between the low areas and the high areas. You know, some of it's historical and there's things like erosion that have happened and some of it's they don't under yield and sometimes have gotten manure or, or grazing, that kind of thing um, in, in wet years and there's accumulation there. So um, when it comes to making use of, not impacting water quality negatively, but also making use of kind of limited resources, there is a lot of, I think, space to think about that kind of approach of targeted applications. Um, if we're talking about inputs or even targeted grazing or whatever our practices might be that are going to impact soil, soil properties. So um, it's, I mean, maybe I'm just plugging it because I'm like, this is a good area for some more research, but <laughs> it is, uh, it is, it is worthwhile thinking about. Maybe it's kind of what's old is new again. We're talking about, uh, you know, putting manure at the hilltops, <laughs> that kind of stuff. But yeah. Yeah, I think there's lots of room to, to unroll bales or do bale grazing on those eroded knolls too and, and try and reduce that amount of, we're, we're all there for the most part, I'm doing more tillage than I wish I was. Uh, and so we're increasing that likelihood that we're overloading the low areas and we're, we're stripping the high areas. So yeah, I think it's an area where there's some good potential for, uh, for, for mixing them up. Laura's appeared on the screen. I don't know if she wants us to. Yeah, I had I had a question for Ryan Scott. Um, in your presentation earlier, Ryan, you you had a range of fifty to a hundred percent on your farmer funding for various conservation projects. Can you comment on that range and how decisions are made and when you would uh, pay somebody a hundred percent to do a project versus half? It comes down to social good or public good. So for the water retention, we typically do 100%. Um, if there's a real benefit, if somebody's trying to line up an irrigation source or something to that effect, we may ask for a contribution. But typically water retention is funded 100. Um, now that having said that, the landowner does usually supply clay material or rock materials. So we write that into the cost, right? So there is a, there is a bit of a in-kind contribution there from a landowner. Um, but everything and is that of, just your is that your district or all of them do that? That's our district. I don't know how many other districts do a lot of small dam building. It seems like we're kind of unique in that sense. Uh, but that's not that's not exclusive. They, I mean, there's some of them obviously build water retention. But for the most part, all the other programming probably starts at 50-50. And then if we can if we can argue a, a, a pretty strong public benefit. Or if there's some set aside land where they're taking land out of production or, or doing something to provide, you know, especially if there's a recreational water source involved or something like that, then, then the cost shares will, will go up. But it's pretty hard. We're, we, we're delivering several programs from several different funding sources. So it is, it is pretty much a, like a one-off. Like you got to look at each project individually to figure out what the cost shares are going to be. Yeah, I'm just trying to wrap my head around how farmers access conservation district funding. And maybe you can comment on this too, Scott, from your funding. Is Do farmers have to kind of be proactive and go out and figure what they want to do and then shop it around? Or how does it work? So for us, we've kind of totally went that way. We've gone from having like eight or 10 set programs 
to a, a letter of expression where the landowner can come up with their project and discuss the, mer the merits or the benefits, both of them and to, you know, is it improving water quality at a larger scale? And that's where our starting point is. It's, it's, it's kind of like, wow, it's wide open now. It's like you use your, you use your imagination to come up with a great project and argue what you think the cost share should be. Yeah, I would say the same thing is kind of the direction we've gone. We do have a set suite of programs, um, but we're spending money from so many different sources, like the, the Westons give us a bunch of money and we get money from the feds and money from that pot that Ryan spoke about earlier that came from the province a few years ago. And there's different goals with all of it. But I think if, if you had a pretty good idea of what you want to do, go talk to your the conservation group, uh, whether that's DU or us or uh or want any of the watersheds and i would be willing to guess that if, if you've got a good project that's got some uh societal benefit to it you'll find somebody that's going to help you out with the with the cost share at least and if they won't pay for it kind of thing for you so yeah I, I, is there I think... some is is there a place for a farmer to go to find all these programs in one place or they just have to know where they are i think the watersheds are your best bet i think more often than not that's where you're going to find it and and have a little more flexibility um and they know what our programs are so if they can't do it or if they if you're looking for a, a longer term easement or something like that they'll they'll point you towards us i think um so yeah that, that'd be my starting place but all of those groups like i used to go around and knock on doors and, and we don't do that anymore we wait for people to come to us so um yeah i think their contacts are online or further we're out floating around so come find uh find a representative of one of those groups and we'll be able to talk you through what you need to do okay thanks yeah and i would echo the same thing i've sent guys to to docs or to mhhc depending on the program and if they phone here and talk about a project, I can put them in the right direction, whether it's us or another one of our partners. Yeah. Right on, Kate. Well, we're, we're right at time, so I'll, uh, I'll cut us off there. But thanks uh, very much for, for your thoughts, uh, Henry and, and Ryan and Francis for, for participating in, in all this. That was uh, very good, I thought. This episode was narrated and produced by me, Karen Clausen, and edited by Jason Peters from the Manitoba Organic Alliance. We've put a link, a couple of links on our website to some more resources that were discussed in this recording. So go to manitobaorganicalliance.com. If you liked this episode, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any ideas for future episodes, let us know. Get in touch with us either on Twitter at Manitoba Organic or visit our website. See you next time.